welcome all our crime junkies to this episode of Criminally Drunk. I'm your host, Jakey Burtis, alongside the boys. We've got the third Sprouse brother, Corey Pressel. Nice. That was a good one. Thanks, Jake. I am always happy to be here. And we've got a man who quits better than anyone I know, Brendan Carroll. Yes, sir. Since I have absolutely no desire to spend any more time in Texas, I thought it important to rotate back up north. So we're going to trike it over to New York for this episode. Have you guys been to Texas? I haven't. I was going to ask Corey, have you been there? I have not. No, I think I might have had a layover there once, but I've never like been there. I'll probably drive through this summer when I go on my trip. Summer? Oof. I've been to 35 states, somehow not Texas or California. Uh, anyway, don't get too excited, though. Uh, we're talking upstate, so uh, not actual New York. Start watching Fox News. Stop watching your weight. There is no fancy part of it. Upstate New York. Missouri. <laughs> Brennan, I'm actually curious as to your answer to this. You being a native New Yorker, born in Long Island, live in Manhattan. What is upstate New York? Like, where does it start? Oh, God. I mean, for me, it's literally once, essentially when you leave the city. Yeah. I mean, that's what a lot of people say. So yeah. It's fair. Well, people in Western New York do not like when you say that they're in upstate. They get, like, really offended. I could honestly see that. Like, they're more tied to, like, Ohio, Pennsylvania than New York. Fun fact, Cleveland's closer to Pittsburgh than it is Cincinnati. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that doesn't surprise me. Obviously. They're really close. Oh, Sorry. thought that was interesting. My my job is to look at maps all day. I'm sorry. <laughs> you know what, Corey? I hope in this story you get killed. <laughs> Quick disclaimer. This one gets a little gross and sad. There are kids involved, so you... Oh, my God. <laughs> all right. For the children. Drink every time I mention cats, and let's get into it. November 7th... No. First line, got it wrong. <laughs> November 16th, 1971, Rochester, New York. Around 4 p.m., 10-year-old Carmen Cologne was running an errand for her mother. She needed to pick up her mother's medication from the local pharmacy, something Carmen regularly did with her grandparents. However, this time, Carmen begged her grandparents to let her go it alone. Seeing as how many times she'd done it, and how it wasn't that far away, they allowed it. Little Carmen made it to the usual pharmacy on West Main Street, only to be told that her mom's prescription wasn't ready yet. Seeing as she was just a child, store owner Jack Corbin offered to let Carmen stay behind the counter until the prescription was filled. But Carmen responded, quote, I gotta go, I gotta go. Corbin then saw Carmen get into a car parked close to the pharmacy. After half an hour, Carmen hadn't returned home, and her family was beginning to worry. At 7.50 p.m., she was reported missing to the Rochester Police Department. Also, a quick shout-out to friend of the show, Tom Strand, who will be attending Rochester University's business school in the fall. Although a sweet little girl going missing in exchange for Tom is definitely an unfair trade. It's always kids disappearing when they go to the corner store. 
I swear, I like, know every story is like that. I was listening to another true crime show earlier today, and like literally that happened, and I'm like, oh my god, that always happens. <laughs> Around 5 p.m., less than an hour after Corbin reported Carmen left the pharmacy and two hours before she was reported missing to the police, the Rochester PD got nearly a dozen unbelievable phone calls from drivers on I-490. It was reported by scores of witnesses that a naked child was frantically fleeing a vehicle that was driving in reverse on the highway. The child was reportedly ceaselessly waving her arms trying to flag down a car. The police obviously responded quickly to the calls, but it was too late. There was no trace of the vehicle or the child once they arrived on the scene. One witness reported seeing the child being submissively escorted back into the car. The vehicle in question was a dark-colored Ford Pinto, and the police immediately put out an APB, quickly realizing the link between the eyewitness reports and Carmen's being reported missing. The police searched tirelessly, and thanks to their efforts, Carmen would be found two days later on November 18th. So I've done this a couple times where I've said the person was found and left it open-ended as to whether or not they're alive. I've done it once where they were alive and once where they weren't. So uh, what do you guys think, dead or alive? Going alive. Brendan, alive? I was also going to say alive. because Okay, then dead, then dead. Oh, okay. All right. I say live. All right. Corey live, Brennan dead. All right, here we go. <laughs> oh, Please God. Be Please be dead. Two young boys found Carmen naked in a ditch along I-490 in Churchville, some 12 miles from Corbin's pharmacy. Her clothes would steadily be found nearby over the next two weeks. She's dead. Carmen's autopsy read like a horror movie script. All right. Her body was covered in scratches as if she'd been mauled by an animal. She was raped. She had multiple skull fractures and a fractured spine. The coroner confirmed that the killer had strangled Carmen with her bare hands. With their bare hands. Was that a slip? Oh, oh, that implicating that the killer is female. No, uh, that, that wasn't a slip. Right. Ugh, broken spine. Carmen's death was massive news, and there were many different angles for the papers to cover the story from. On the one hand, her death was clearly a tragedy and Carmen's family did everything in their power to secure information. On the other hand, people were outraged and confused about how a dozen witnesses could see what they saw on that highway and do nothing to help. The newspapers offered rewards for information leading to an arrest. Local businesses and private individuals donated to the fund, rising to over $40,000 in today's money. Five large billboards along the highways were purchased to inform the public about what happened to Carmen. It also included a tip line, which produced several new leads. The police interrogated several suspects, all of whom were cleared. And by Christmas, solving Carmen's murder was no longer a priority. A girl brutally murdered at the end of 1971, Carmen Cologne in Churchville. So what do you guys think about like people seeing what they saw on the highway and doing nothing because the phrase is if you see something say something which they did is it just like a sad fact of human existence that that's probably what we would all do call the police but not actually interfere i mean i think it depends situation to situation but i wonder if that's something that people interfered more back in the day or less like i wonder how the trend is yeah i think it was probably they used to do it more there is a plausible explanation for 
it, it could have just been the daughter of whoever it was and they somehow were acting up and got out but also highways can be tricky i mean logistically like stopping on a yeah, highway and true so i think a lot of factors led to no one interfering if this was like in a park or something with people and, and cars not involved i think it would have been a very different story you can also just pretend like oh i just like i didn't really see that i think it's easy to justify to yourself a reason to not get involved yeah that's fair carmen's death while tragic began to fade in the memories of the citizens of rochester but they would be reminded in the worst possible way that carmen's killer was still on the loose on april 2nd 1973 around 5 p.m 11-year-old Wanda Walkowitz was on her way home from the grocery store. Her parents asked her to pick up some groceries at the deli nearby, and the clerk noted her being there around 5.15 p.m. She started to walk home down Cockney Avenue, but her parents became worried when she didn't return home. Joyce Walkowitz reported her daughter missing to the police at 8 p.m., and they began an intensive search for her. A team of 50 detectives scoured the area and turned up no trace of her. They did note that neighbors reported seeing Wanda struggling to carry the groceries around Avenue B. Three of Wanda's classmates noticed her carrying the bags and forcing them up against the fence so she could get a better grip. They also reported seeing a brown car driving past her. The police worked into the night, and the Bow Wow eventually picked up Wanda's trail. The Bow Wow is code for police dog. I just like saying that. Send in the Bow Wow. The next morning around 10 a.m., they found Wanda. Want to change it this time, Corey? You get first pick. Uh, Yeah, I'm going to say dead. Oh, I'm going to go alive. The second one's always found alive. She lay dead at the base of a hill alongside Route 104 near Webster. Coroners determined from the position of her body that she'd been thrown out of a moving vehicle. Wanda had been raped and strangled with a belt. She had defensive wounds on her body, indicating she fought back. They also determined she'd been bizarrely redressed post-mortem. Forensics was able to recover semen and pubic hair samples from the killer. They also found several strands of white cat fur on Wanda, an animal her family didn't own. A reward, this time for more than $60,000 in today's money, was gathered. Investigators found eyewitnesses who reported seeing Wanda conversing with a man in a brown vehicle on her way home from the store. None of the witnesses could make out the driver, but the location was just 300 meters from Wanda's home. One eyewitness said she saw a man forcing a girl matching Wanda's description into a brown Dodge Dart around 5.30 p.m. Despite this, the Rochester PD denied any link between Wanda and Carmen's murders. First, Carmen Cologne in Churchville, and now Wanda Walkowitz in Webster. No progress was being made in either Carmen or Wanda's cases. The police remained adamant that they were dealing with two separate killers. It would be harder for them to maintain that belief for much longer. November 26th, 1973, Carolyn Mianza became worried when her 11-year-old daughter Michelle didn't make it home from school. Carolyn had left her purse at a store near Michelle's school, and Michelle went to pick it up for her on her way home. Around 3.20 p.m., her classmates reported her walking alone towards the store. Around 3.30 p.m., a witness reported seeing a girl matching Michelle's description in the passenger seat of a beige vehicle. 
speeding down Ackerman Street. According to the witness, Michelle was crying. About two hours later, a witness reported seeing a man by a large beige vehicle with a flat tire near Route 305 near Walworth. He was holding a girl by the wrist, and the witness would later strongly believe that girl was Michelle. This witness did something nobody else in this story had done. He saw someone in need and offered help. The witness offered to assist changing the tire. The man pushed Michelle behind him and obscured his license plate number. The police said the witness reported that the man, quote, stared in his direction with such a menacing expression on his face that the motorist had felt compelled to drive away. Michelle's body was discovered at 10.30 a.m. on November 28th, lying face down in a ditch alongside a road in Macedon, about 15 miles from Rochester. Michelle's body had received several blunt force traumas. She'd been raped and strangled with a rope. White cat fur was found on her clothing. Forensics also found she was likely strangled on the spot where she was discovered. Traces of the killer's semen and a partial set of prints were recovered from the body. Forensics confirmed she was raped by a single individual. An eyewitness reported seeing a white man with dark hair, about 30 years old, 6 feet tall, and 165 pounds, at a fast food restaurant near Rochester with a young girl about 4.30 p.m. the day Michelle disappeared. Forensics found a hamburger in Michelle's stomach, leading investigators to believe that this could be the killer's description, and circulated a composite sketch. Police now believed that this was the work of one person, and set up a team to track him down. More than 800 suspects turned up, but none of them seemed to fit the bill. Once police began examining the cases as the work of one killer, they began to notice similarities. All were young girls from impoverished Catholic families who did poor academically. It was raining on the day of each girl's disappearance, and each girl was found on the side of the road. Each girl was short and had been raped and strangled. None of the girls were particularly popular at school and had been considered social outcasts amongst their peers. Upon the re-examinations of Carmen's and Wanda's stomachs, it was revealed that the killer, too, had fed them prior to killing them. Another interesting pattern emerged. I know Carmen Cologne in Churchville, Wanda Walkovitz in Webster, and now Michelle Maenza in Macedon. The initials baffled the authorities. So let's examine the suspects, just who was the alphabet killer. Instead of the 800 suspects the Rochester police had, there were four who I think warrant a deeper dive. The first is none other than the uncle of Carmen Cologne, Miguel. Miguel was the brother of Carmen's father, Justiniano. I'm going to mispronounce all these names. Justiniano and Carmen's mother, Guillermina, had become separated, and when they did, Guillermina and Miguel became very close. Miguel had also purchased a new car just weeks before Carmen's disappearance. It was a dark-colored Ford Pinto, the same car that Carmen was seen fleeing from. The police searched his car and found that it had been scrubbed with strong cleaning solutions. The car dealership confirmed it hadn't scrubbed the car with these strong types of cleaning solutions before selling it. One of Carmen's dolls was found in the back seat, although the family noted that Carmen had often ridden in Miguel's car. According to a friend, Miguel indicated he was leaving New York two days after Carmen's murder because, quote, he did something wrong in Rochester 
He left for Puerto Rico that week. In March of 1972, the police traveled to San Juan to question Miguel, but this was telegraphed in the papers ahead of time, and Miguel was able to flee. Eventually, he surrendered to the police and was extradited back to New York. Miguel was unable to provide an alibi for Carmen's murder, or any of the other girls for that matter. Despite that, no physical evidence linked him to the crimes. In 1991, Miguel committed suicide following the shootings of Guillermina and Justiniano. You like this guy? He's no Henry, but he'll do. <laughs> I think there's a lot to suggest that he did it, but let's keep going. Brendan, I got a feeling you're going to love this next guy. The second suspect is Rochester fireman Dennis Termini. I know the question on your mind, was he professional or volunteer? Professional is a huge red flag after all. I don't know the answer. I think he was professional. <laughs> Termini was a serial rapist known as the garage rapist. He's known to have raped at least 14 women between 1971 and 1973. He also owned a beige vehicle that matched witnesses' descriptions. He's also known to have lived near Michelle. Recall that Michelle was abducted just 300 meters from her house. Soon after Michelle's murder, on January 1st, 1974, he attempted to abduct a teenage girl at gunpoint, but it was botched and he fled. Soon after, he tried to abduct another girl. This time, a patrolman witnessed the attempted abduction and pursued Termini. When it became clear he wasn't going to get away, he shot himself in the head. Forensics found white cat hair in Termini's car. Despite this, in January of 2007, Termini's body was exhumed for a DNA test. Shockingly, his DNA did not match the semen sample found on Wanda's body. The physical evidence from Carmen and Michelle's bodies seemed to have disappeared. Each of these guys is probably, from your guys' perspective, going to have one or two things that makes them seem like they're definitely the killer and like one or two things that definitely makes it seem like they're not. Kind of telegraphing that this one might go unsolved, but... I like this guy, but I'll give my full opinion at the end. The third suspect is none other than the infamous Hillside Strangler, Kenneth Bianchi. The Hillside Strangler murders were actually the work of Kenneth and his cousin, Angelo Buono Jr., and they killed 10 girls between the ages 22 and 28 in 1977 and 1978. True crime aficionados are probably highly skeptical of this theory, knowing the Hillside Strangler murders took place in L.A. However, Bianchi was living in Rochester during the Alphabet murders. During his time in Rochester, Bianchi, I shit you not, worked as an ice cream man. Oh. Bianchi vehemently denied his involvement in the murders, but he is known to have driven a car that matches eyewitnesses' descriptions. He's currently serving life in prison in California for the Hillside Strangler murders. This is perhaps another instance we've encountered of people trying to tie existing serial killers into crimes they may have had nothing to do with. Um, this one has a lot more credibility, I think, than a lot of the other theories. Like this one holds a lot more water than like the Ted Bundy or not Ted Bundy, uh, Ted Kaczynski being the Chicago Tylenol murderer or something like that. Yeah, I mean, there's only so many of them. I could see him doing that. Our fourth 
And final suspect is a man by the name of Joseph Nasso. Nasso lived in Rochester during the early 70s and was a person of interest in Wanda's killing, but his DNA was not a match for Wanda's murderer. However, in April of 2011, Nasso was arrested at the age of 77 in Nevada. He was charged and convicted of the murders of four prostitutes between 1977 and 1994. All of their surnames began with the same letter as their first name. Nasso is currently on death row. The alphabet murders are, I think, a dangerous reminder of the simple reality we live in. Detectives and us amateur sleuths rightfully examine every single detail of a crime as a data point. When you gather enough data points, the human brain does what it does best. It finds patterns, even where they don't exist. The fact that all the victims were poor, Catholic, underachievers, and social outcasts is meaningless. A simple look at the area's demographics and the fact that each one of these traits more or less leads into the other shows that there's little there. While people are keen to draw on the namesake of the case is evidence that the killer stalked his victims by name and left their bodies where he did. This too is likely just happenstance. The fact is, even the M.O.s, while on the surface appear very similar, aren't the same. Authorities pointed out that Carmen's abduction is different than the others, as it seemed as if she was taken by someone she knew, given Corbin's story. I'm incredibly confident that Carmen was murdered by her uncle Miguel. Having said that, I don't believe he killed Wanda or Michelle. I think Dennis Termini is the most likely suspect to have murdered the other two girls. While the DNA test did not match, let's remember what a DNA test is. DNA evidence can actually prove if someone's the killer and can only definitively prove someone is not the killer in rare circumstances. The results show a likelihood that someone is or is not the killer, and this likelihood can be as high as 1 in 11 million. Other credible studies have shown DNA evidence is right in determining outcomes only about 95% of the time. Well, this is pretty accurate. It's certainly not unfathomable that the testers got it wrong with Termini. It's unknown how conclusive the results of his tests were, but given that it was comparing just traces of semen with DNA exhumed from his body that had been dead for 30 years, it likely leans toward the 95% certainty mark. The white cat fur found on Termini and on the other two victims, to me, is a significant piece of evidence as well as his attempted abductions and serial rapist behavior. Personally, I don't buy the Bianchi or Nasso theories at all. I could also be very easily convinced that some unnamed psycho killed Wanda and Michelle. What's the name of the guy that threw the people in the river? Oh, uh, Wayne Bertram Williams. I think it was him. (laughs) I agree that Miguel killed uh, the first... Carmen. Girl. Carmen, yeah. I think that makes sense. The motive, we didn't really touch on why he would have done it, but the follow-up story and him committing suicide lines up. But otherwise, unless the fireman was volunteer, that's the only way I think he would have done it because definitely a paid fireman would never do anything like that. They're way too professional to do something like that. What do you? I didn't ask, what do you guys think of the name of the garage rapist? 
I think the press needs to do a better job. I think it's funny that you told Brendan that he would like this guy and then immediately go on with that. <laughs> I like the name. It's kind of like, I think it's a fearful name. <laughs> a beautiful name? Is that what you said? No, fearful. Oh, oh fearful. It, you, like you're afraid does. of the garage rapist? Yeah, he's not going to take you to a nice place in the woods. He's just going to open the garage. Oh, and a garage just seems scary. I think there was literally a Teen Titans villain called the Garage Rapist. So what, what do you guys think about what I said, though, that like the names and like locations lining up is probably just a coincidence. I mean, it's a decent coincidence. I'll give you that. But like, do you guys buy that or no? I could see it. Uh, I don't know. I mean, were they really found in those places or like people? I think those were the closest like towns to where they were found. So, right. I agree. It's probably just a coincidence. But as soon as you said the second one, I knew. And I feel like I had heard the story of the girls' names and the locations. The important takeaways from this story is to be smart about patterns that we find. I'm reminded of Joseph Gordon-Levitt's line in The Dark Knight Rises about detectives not being allowed to believe in coincidences, but they do exist. In fact, they exist everywhere and are pervasive in our data-driven society. The other important takeaway is perhaps the biggest tragedy of this story. There were multiple people in a position to help these girls, and they didn't. Well, the phrase is, if you see something, say something. If you see a naked 10-year-old girl trying to flag down cars while a vehicle is driving reverse down the highway after her, maybe it's time to do something. Are you going to say something, Brendan? Or No, that's fair. Okay. Yeah, okay. Big thanks to all our crime junkies. I know this one was kind of depressing, uh, but this will cheer you guys up. Uh, we're taking our towns to South Beach next. Until next time, don't kill anybody, but if you do... Don't push their body out of a moving car. <laughs>